welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. The Center for Investment Excellence is an audio podcast that provides educational insights across asset classes and investment themes. We've heard a lot about China recently, and so let's just remind folks, China is poised to become the world's biggest economy, really too big for investors to ignore going forward. It is home to some of the world's largest equity and bond markets, and yet investors are still woefully underexposed in China. Over the next hour or so, we'll shed some light on what we are seeing in China equity markets and how it is impacting portfolio positioning. To facilitate this discussion, I'm going to pose some questions I have prepared for Howard. So, Howard, thank you so much for joining us today. I know it's getting late for you in Hong Kong, so why don't we dive right in with some questions? Let's start with the market in China and what your experience has been over the past few months as China has gone through the pandemic. Yeah, I think the experience I've had is actually similar to the news flow that's come out about the pandemic. So I think it began early in the year with reports of a pneumonia. The local authorities denied that there was an issue, and to the extent that there was something happening, they said it was easily containable. And as a result of that, the markets traded quite well, along with global markets at the beginning of the year, and then went into Chinese New Year. And it was really during the Chinese New Year holiday that we started hearing more about the scale of what was happening and how contagious the virus was. Essentially, our markets were closed. Global markets sold off. When our market reopened after Chinese New Year, basically every stock was limited down, which is 10% in China A. At that point in time, I think the government came out with calls for a pretty coordinated fiscal and monetary response. So by the next day, there was a rebound. And then China essentially stabilized. And it really only became a question mark again when we saw that the virus went global. In other words, I think if you trace the path of the average investment professional in China, they kind of went through the ups and downs emotionally and market-wise of what was happening with the virus and the amount of government support to put behind it. I think within the market, though, there were very, very large divergences because I was just really talking about index levels. And we can get through some of that, but in very stark terms, essentially companies that could grow despite the state of the overall economy, i.e. companies that were growth companies and not necessarily very cyclical, companies that had things to do with digitalization, software, companies that had something to do with healthcare, companies that had something to do with the electric vehicle future, 5G infrastructure, all these kinds of stocks in China actually went up. Some went up quite a bit. And then stocks having to do with the big, broad economic cycle, whether it's banks, commodities, construction companies and the like, actually went down quite a bit. Underneath the surface of a market that went down pretty sharply and it kind of rebounded from there, there were just a lot of divergence in sector performance. Much of it really to do with how investors were thinking about the impact of the virus on various subsectors over the longer term, and also really baking in the reality that rates might be lower for longer, not only in China, but on a global basis as a result of the devastation caused by the pandemic. A real divergence in terms of sector performance during this time period. When you think about your investment process and the recent changes that we've seen in the market and the monetary and fiscal stimulus that's taken place in China and really the rest of the world, has it impacted your investment process at all? The short answer is no, because we came with an investment process basically built on a few research pillars. The first one is what we call strategic classification, and that's thinking about companies within the context of their industries over a longer term. Think about structural changes that could happen to industries. Think about secular trends underlying demand, whether on the corporate side or on the consumer side. 
And that really provides the qualitative foundation for the kinds of companies you want to invest in. And that's relevant in every type of circumstance, trying to buy the best businesses that generate high returns on capital and then deliver that return to shareholders over time. The second pillar we tend to look at is we think about valuation on a longer-term basis. So in other words, when we go into a situation like we are in right now where there's a massive shock to results over a short period of time, but hopefully a rebound as we get into year two, year three, year four after the virus, this is the way our valuation system is built. So in some ways, our valuation process is well adapted to situations like we're seeing right now, which is essentially the equivalent of a natural disaster. And then the third pillar that we build our process on is what we call the risk profile analysis and thinking about environmental social governance issues for companies over a period of time. And a lot of these kind of questions focus around the sustainability of a business, its ability to weather downturns, such as the one we're in right now, its ability for a company to basically deliver great outcomes for the broader society that it's part of. That's also quite relevant. What we really focus on is strong businesses that will do well over time, that treat your shareholders the right way, treat your communities the right way. And as a result of that, we think it's an all-weather process, and it's a process that we really hold on to and really come back to during periods like this. Thus far, I think the returns in our strategies have been pretty satisfactory as a result of this, which give us even more confidence that staying with what we know and the way that we look at companies and industries is the right thing to do, even though there's so much happening around us in terms of the economic cycle and in terms of politics and the like. Great. Thank you. You mentioned before some of the winners in this situation were digitalization, healthcare, electric vehicles, and 5G. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? And on the flip side of that, can you just talk about some of the risks that you're seeing, what's keeping you up at night as you evaluate opportunities for this portfolio? <laughs> it's like one a lot. But first on the opportunity side, when we think about constructing portfolios, and I represent the growth part of our book of business, we usually think in terms of big subsectors with strong underlying growth trends. And roughly speaking, they fall under three really broad thematics or sectors. One is the healthcare opportunity in China. Second is the technology opportunity in China. And the third one is the consumer opportunity in China. And really, I think right now, when we think about all three of those, we think about the first two principally as things that will do well structurally. And because of the virus, what's happened is that a lot of demand that we were forecasting several years in the future was essentially brought forward. So, for instance, we have positions and companies that are involved in vaccinations and diagnostics and in testing within the healthcare space. All these are companies where we looked at them, we said, well, let's take flu vaccination. In China, the number of people vaccinated with flu is something like 4 to 6%, depending on how you count it. The number, obviously, in the United States is much, much higher, over half the population. Originally, our thesis was, well, China over time will see an inching up as awareness grows about flu vaccination and how valuable of a thing it is for everybody, even if you have to pay out of pocket. Obviously, I think now we're in a situation where awareness of what this can do, whether for an individual in terms of keeping you healthy, keeping you away from hospital, or from a public health standpoint, i.e. keeping people who do not need to be in a doctor's office or in a hospital away from there because they can get a vaccination, has become much more important. These kind of healthcare trends are ones where we thought penetration might have been, call it 15% five years from now, and all of a sudden it could be 15% next year, and it could be 40% five years from now. With healthcare, broadly speaking, we see a lot of opportunities like that. 
On the technology side, we've invested in companies that, for instance, provide China's version of Microsoft Office, but it's given away essentially free in China. You basically subscribe for extra features and then get rid of advertising like we do with apps on the Apple App Store. We've invested in a lot of companies that have something to do with digitalization of analog businesses. And then, again, these are things where recent events have brought forward future demand. China's trying to use its own operating system much more because the United States may prevent its domestic producers from giving China technology. But at the same time, and also when we look at something like digitalization, there's a current need that's grown a lot. And then the future need actually has grown quite a bit also because people realize it's important for companies to be able to automate as many processes as possible, for company managements to have a lot of information at their fingertips and be able to analyze it. It's important for people to be able to work from home and work from the road in a very effective way. Again, I think within tech and especially within the technology parts of our China A portfolios, which are very software and digitalization focused, there is a future opportunity that was brought forward to the present time. And the future opportunity is a lot bigger than we probably thought it was or hoping it would be. And then finally, within consumer, I think it's much more niche. And I would say that consumer right now, it's pretty well trodden. So there are a lot of these producers that also analogous to the healthcare and tech type companies where the current situation benefits them in some way, and it will change behavior for their consumers over a longer period of time. Taking a step back and kind of summing up, we probably see the best opportunities in healthcare and tech right now, particularly in healthcare along diagnostics, testings and services, in tech, in the software space, broadly speaking. And then we see some niche consumer opportunities also, although I think from a longer term standpoint, and particularly the near term, there might be like an upcycle, and we talk about a little bit later how the Chinese consumer is doing, where there might be a little bit of a cyclical bounce we also see tactical opportunity in consumer. Overall, there's a lot of things to be excited about. Now, on the risk side, I think the principal things are reasonably straightforward. Number one, I think China went into the virus and then crafted this program thinking that the virus would be the equivalent of a heart attack and that the patient would be resuscitated with a V-shaped recovery. I think what China did not gauge successfully was the possibility that the virus would go overseas. We do worry about the longer-term damage that could be done into economies all over the world and what that would mean for China's export and manufacturing businesses. I think the second thing that's happened, which has obviously got a lot of headlines of late, is China's foreign policy and the geopolitical environment of functions might have just gotten a lot, lot worse. It's had its bad moments. The phase one trade deal was signed with the United States. It looked like things were, at the very least, stabilizing, but now it looks like we could potentially take a leg down. So geopolitics is on our mind in terms of sanctions, tariffs, and other breakdowns or disorderly breakdowns in a way that the U.S. and China economies are interlinked. So we do worry about these two things. And then finally, I think, from an overall standpoint, we do worry a little bit about valuation. Because there have been rallies in a lot of the types of stocks that we like to look at in terms of the growth areas in China, we do worry that the average investor might be a little bit more short-term in some of the things they look at. They start looking at one-year PE, et cetera, and then we might get a little bit of a valuation correction. But to us, that's much more technical in nature, whereas export demand is possibly a serious cyclical issue. And the second issue, geopolitics and the way things work out between the U.S. and China, that could be a structural issue that could create a new set of winners and losers within China, but overall would make China as an economy a bit of a loser, just like it would make, I think, the global economy a bit of a loser if the U.S. and China decouple. Great. Thanks for the summary there. You mentioned valuations. Can you just talk about where you're seeing valuations currently, how you're valuing companies, and were they stretched before entering into the economic shutdown? 
Sure. Going into the shutdowns, we looked at valuations using our five-year expected return that I talked about before when I was talking about our process. And roughly speaking, going into the serious part of the shutdown, so after the markets fell that first day after a long Chinese New Year holiday, we were starting to look at China and MSCI China valuations, call it in the mid to high teens. Now, we've seen, particularly I think in China, we've seen a bit of a rally since then. So now within our coverage universe, we see something that's much more in the mid-teens, call it about 13% or thereabouts. And our five-year expected return for MSCI China will be about 15%, given that those markets, whether it's U.S.-China ADRs or probably even more damaging, like what's happened to a lot of the cyclicals listed in Hong Kong that are China companies, that's led us to probably about a 15% expected return. The way we look at valuations is really with that metric in mind, particularly for a growth investor, as I mentioned before, it's quite handy because we have companies in healthcare or software that might take some losses up front, make a lot of money later on. Or right now, just broadly speaking, there's a lot of companies in the economy taking a loss and then will make money later on. It also allows us to think about what profitability and returns look like on a normalized basis. And that really forms the foundation of the way we think about valuation. So as a whole, I would look at it, I'd say the market is cheapish. When we think about emerging markets in Asia Pacific, like the broader team that I'm a part of, we can find other markets that are cheaper, but we probably can't find a market with so many idiosyncratic micro-level opportunities like there are in China, just given the vast size of the market and the fact that when you look at China onshore, the market is 80, 90% of any given day is the turnover comes from retail. So there are also just a lot of opportunities that come up for investors who are a little bit more patient. In other words, I think when we think about that 13% number, that's actually not a bad 13% number because when we scratch underneath that, we can find very high probability 10s and we can find very attractively valued 20s within that 13% aggregate number for China A. And that 13% is your five-year expected return forecast that's derived bottom-up from the analysts that are looking at the companies. Yeah, that's right. We were basically summing up those forecasts. And roughly speaking, the way we do it sounds quite sophisticated, but it really is what PE do you pay going in? What PE do you get coming out in year five? Dividends, we FX back to U.S. dollars, and of course, the foundation for returns is earnings growth over those five years. It's a pretty simple formula that we're using, but we're applying it on a bottom-up basis with our companies and then just summing it up into that 13% as opposed to deriving that 13 top-down. Got it. Thanks. More broadly, as U.S. investors, as I said at the beginning, people are pretty under-allocated currently to China. How should we be thinking about allocating to China? How big of a portion could it be of the overall market? Obviously, inclusion is increasing in the MSCI emerging market indices. How should we be thinking about a dedicated China flea for our investors? Well, I think the very raw numbers say that within emerging markets, if China goes in at its fully included weight without MSCI scaling it back, it can represent over 40% of the index fairly easily. And that's excluding all the IPOs. There are a lot of big companies in China that just haven't even listed yet. For instance, ByteDance, the people behind TikTok, that's a $100 billion company. That's basically a herd of unicorns put together. So in other words, market cap can grow both through new listings and through earnings growth, et cetera. So China becomes a very, very meaningful portion of the emerging universe. I guess if I were sitting in the shoes of someone who's looking at an EM manager and thinking about, well, do I need to carve out China? I guess the question really is, is the EM manager prepared to research China in a way that China needs to be researched? Because I think we need to remember the average domestic fund manager who's big, kind of a top 20, top 30, top 40 fund manager, these places have, call it, 
15, 20, 30, up to 50 dedicated research analysts looking at fundamental equities in China. That is the competition when we think about market efficiency. So the question really is, is can the emerging market manager have that resourcing to compete over the longer term against people like that? Because I think over the last two or three years, it was quite easy just to buy the, call it first 20 names that come to mind in China A, for instance. And you do very, very well. Those are great companies. Weizhou Maltai, the liquor manufacturer, there's some great technology companies. There's one really big pharma company that everybody holds. These stocks have done spectacularly well. But when we look forward three or five years in terms of generating alpha, you really need to get down into the weeds, understand the mid caps in China. And the question I think really is for allocating is, is your EM manager prepared to deliver that for you? And happily, I think, for instance, we're obviously the JP Morgan call, we'll say, hey, we're able to do that. We actually have that much in terms of resourcing on the ground. Not every emerging manager, even great ones, have that kind of resourcing. And that's fine right now when the China universe is 10 or 28 shares plus Tencent plus Alibaba. But the way the China universe might look in three to five years when it gets much bigger in the index and it gets much more complex and difficult to outperform other people, that's really a question, I think, of structural resourcing because you need to have a lot of people looking at it and there's also a language barrier, of course, because the people looking at it will need to be able to speak, read, and write Chinese. And preferably, you'll have people who are representative of all the various regions of China, because in terms of predicting consumer demand, thinking about government activity, et cetera, it always helps to have people who are just really grassroots from there. So really, I think thinking as somebody who's principally a China manager, that's probably the way I would think about emerging managers and whether one would need to think about China separately. Can they deliver that type of solution and bring you the whole market and the whole economy. Going back to the trade war between U.S. and China, there's been a lot of talk about supply chain shifting back to domestic markets, not just in the U.S., but elsewhere. And it seems that that has intensified again recently. What's your view of the likelihood that this will occur and who would be some of the winners and losers if it does? Let me try to answer that question a couple of different ways. First, from a self-sufficiency standpoint, with things like medical equipment and certain necessities, I think there's a 100% chance. I happened to be on a panel a couple of weeks ago with a couple of prominent economists. One was Penny Goldberg, who used to be at the World Bank. The other one was Austin Goolsby, who used to be with the Council of Economic Advisors. And just talking through countries and regions around the world, and this is a universal trend, that having gone through this pandemic, countries with the capability and with the capacity to do it would want to be able to produce a lot of their own medical equipment, regions used in medical testing of other kind of mission-critical goods for the economy. So there's no question that everybody will want to move farther towards self-sufficiency. But in terms of kind of the broader picture, I think that you're referencing with the U.S. and China and supply chains outside of these necessities, I think that there was, I don't want to call it a decoupling, but there was already a shift away from China prior to the Trump administration, prior to the trade war. And that was a very natural economic shift because China just got expensive. Because a lot of the things that we were talking about, sophistication, Chinese corporates are ready for software, consumers are becoming much more sophisticated. This is a result of average incomes in China having gone up a lot over the last few years. The currency appreciating from back when it was fixed to where it is now, a reasonable amount as well. In other words, China just got more expensive because it became much more developed. So because of that, supply chains have already been shifting. For instance, in our broader offshore China portfolios, we own shares of a company that is the biggest and best textile player in the region, possibly in the world. This is out the outsourcing, the upstream supplier for some people like Nike and Adidas. 
this company had already shifted half of its production out of China, where it was based in eastern China, into countries in Southeast Asia. So it's got big plant in Vietnam, and it also has capacity, for instance, in Cambodia. So this has already been happening. In the same way that Japan kind of gave way to Taiwan, Taiwan gave way to China, China was already giving way to Southeast Asia. They're also companies with globalized footprints because of the way that tariffs are set up. So, for instance, we own a company in Taiwan that makes servers as well as TVs with a significant capacity in places like Mexico because of the tariff regime there as a result of the old NAFTA and now the USMCA. I think what's basically happened is, similar to the way the pandemic magnified and accelerated certain trends we saw on a micro level, the Trump administration and the U.S.-China trade war essentially accelerated the supply chain shift that was already happening. To the extent that China was already giving up things because it wasn't the lowest cost location anymore, that just accelerated because the tariffs basically effectively are increasing the cost. Plus, there's also the threat of sanctions and the need for China to become more self-sufficient on certain things where it used to depend on globalized supply chains. So I think we'll probably see a lot more thinking around a portfolio around tech manufacturing in China built around this. Like, What is China need to become self-sufficient in? Where does China have the capability to be self-sufficient? Where you have a company that's able to produce something at a profit and not just produce a lot of substandard goods at a loss. So this is something that's already been happening. It's accelerated and it's something that's already informing our investment thinking. Okay, great. Well, Howard, thank you so much for your time today. We know it's getting late there and you're hopefully going to head off to dinner with the family or at least the bedtime story. We appreciate everybody for joining in today. And if you have any questions or would like any additional information on what we discussed, please reach out to your J.P. Morgan client advisor. For institutional wholesale professional clients and qualified investors only, not for retail use or distribution, not for retail distribution, this communication has been prepared exclusively for institutional, wholesale, professional clients and qualified investors only, as defined by local laws and regulations. The views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yields are not reliable indicators of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase and Company and its affiliates worldwide. To the extent permitted by applicable law, we may record telephone calls and monitor electronic communications to comply with our legal and regulatory obligations and internal policies. Personal data will be collected, stored and processed by J.P. Morgan Asset Management in accordance with our privacy policies at https://am.jpmorgan.com.
slash global slash privacy. This communication is issued by the following entities in the United States by JP Morgan Investment Management Inc. or JP Morgan Alternative Asset Management Inc., both regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission in Latin America for intended recipients use only by local JP Morgan entities, as the case may be in Canada for institutional clients use only by JP Morgan Asset Management Canada Inc which is a registered portfolio manager and exempt market dealer in all Canadian provinces and territories except the Yukon and is also registered as an investment fund manager in British Columbia, Ontario, Quebec and Newfoundland and Labrador, in the United Kingdom, by JP Morgan Asset Management, UK, Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, in other European jurisdictions, by JP Morgan Asset Management Europe S, A Grave RL, in Asia Pacific, APAC by the following issuing entities and in the respective jurisdictions in which they are primarily regulated, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Asia Pacific, Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds, Asia, Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets, Asia, Limited, each of which is regulated by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Singapore, Limited, Company, Reg. No. 197,601,586K, which this advertisement or publication has not been reviewed by the Monetary Authority of Singapore, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Taiwan, Limited, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Japan, Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type 2 Financial Instruments Firms Association and the Japan Securities Dealers Association and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency. Registration Number Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, Number 330, in Australia, to wholesale clients only as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, Commonwealth, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Australia, Limited, ABN 55143832080, AFSL 376919, Copyright 2020 JP Morgan Chase & Company All Rights Reserved.